very good morning to you, Lionheart Radio 107.3 FM on a Saturday morning. It's just after 10 o'clock, hopefully on a phone line. Not a million miles from here is Daniel Mumby. Good morning. Good morning, Richard. Can you hear me okay? I can indeed, yes. That, Technolo- really good. Technology's working. Yes. How are you this morning? I'm fine. And where are you? I'm uh, in a flat somewhere on the west side of Manchester, and uh, I'm chuffed a bit with the Sri Lanka victory that we got. Yes, indeed. Wasn't that a good result? Yes, indeed. So what's the weather like in Manchester? Don't say wet. Um, cloudy in that case. It it was raining yesterday, but we seem to have got a better day today. I'm I'm hoping to go out and play some cricket around lunchtime, so uh, maybe wander over to to Old Trafford and have a look at the new stand. Doesn't that sound fun? Doesn't that sound... You're a cricket fan, I take it. Yes, and I'm also chuffed that Swan got ten wickets because yes. I'm an off-spinner as well. Right, right. so it's um, back to normal times, back to normal things after all the excitement of last um, weekend and yeah. our X-rated special. Yes, we'll have something a little gentler this morning. Yes, yes, yes. Well, shall we have a look what's on at the local screens, first of all? And yeah, we start on. with... Uh, Thursday night, the 11th of April. Have I got my nights the right way around? No, Wednesday night, the 11th of April, at the Annick Playhouse. Um, then in the evening, they've got The Artist at uh, half past seven, and I went to see that uh, last Wednesday up in Berwick. I thought it was brilliant, and if you haven't been to see it yet, go and see it. Absolutely fantastic. The dog deserves an Oscar. <laughs> yeah, I can largely concur with everything you said, and... Uh... Yes, the dog is very, very good. Yes, indeed. Earlier on that afternoon, I think this is so funny on the uh, the website here for the Annick Playhouse, it's the monster in Paris 2D. They can't do 3D, but anyway. Yeah, uh, monster in Paris, I mean, it's a, it's perfectly decent um, animated comedy. I think it is better in 2D. The best thing about it really are the songs because of the involvement of uh, Vanessa Paradis, who is, of course, the other half of Johnny Depp, but she is a very good singer-songwriter. Right, and then next Saturday at the Playhouse is The Descendants, half past seven. Yeah, which is the, the, the latest from Alexander Payne. I think it is a lot gentler and lighter than some of his early works. I recommend strongly that you go and re- check out About Schmidt if you haven't already. Um... I think, you know, we all went into the Oscars thinking George Clooney, it was his year, he was a dead cert, and then the Oscars turned around and actually did the brave thing of giving the award to Jean Dujardin. Um, yeah, it's very good, like I say, it will, it's one of those films that when you're watching it, you might not be overly impressed, but then a couple of hours later, you'll realise how really good it was. Oh one double six five five one zero seven eight five. if you want to book up tickets for the Annick Playhouse. And a busy old week at the Berwick Morting, so we'll try and rattle through a few of these. First of all, this afternoon at 2.30 and Thursday at 2.30, it's the Muppets! Well, um, we don't really need to say much more about it. It's great, and if you haven't seen it yet, what are you doing with yourself? Then tomorrow afternoon, 2.30 is Big Miracle. Yeah, which, you know, based on a true story, Hollywoodized, I don't really think Drew Barrymore's bit is necessary, but it's okay. Right, two films for Easter Day. At half past two, there is Hop, and then in the evening, The Vow. Okay, Hop is rubbish, because that's the Russell Brand 3D animated comedy, and it's not funny, and The Vow is... The Vow's just a little bit disappointing. I mean, it's Challenge Tatum and Rachel McAdams, and, you know, it is essentially while you were sleeping for the 21st century, and no... While you were sleeping, it's got Sandra Bullock in one of her few very good performances, so I would go and rent that instead. Yeah, both of those half-price events, by the way, £3 to get in. I can see um, why. Tuesday evening at 8 o'clock is Carnage. 
Yeah, the Roman Polanski film, which I, I think is a little stagier than we've come to expect from him, but it is, you know, it plums the same sorts of territory as Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and does it very well. Wednesday night at seven is War Horse. Which, you know, is very deliberately sentimental. I don't think it's Spielberg's finest hour, and it is episodic, but, you know, as a good old-fashioned tearjerker, it definitely does its job. On to Thursday night at eight is The Grey. Yeah, no, Joe Carnahan's best film. Um, I think Liam Neeson, though, doing the... It's, it is slightly better than some of the other nuts and bolts action films that he has fallen into doing recently. And, you know, it does have a kind of strange 70s dystopian edge to it. So, yeah, it's okay. And then to end the week one, I know you'll like The Woman in Black on Saturday night at 7. Which is really great. Um, it's finally gone out of the top ten, but I'm really glad that The Woman in Black took lots of money. You know, speaking as a seasoned horror fan who has seen any number of ghost stories. I was genuinely creeped out by the woman in black. So that's as, a, as good a recommendation as you can get from me. Great. So the Maltings box office number, of course, is 01289 330 if you want to go and see that. Full details, of course, in this week's Northumberland Gazette and also at their various websites. So from the local films to the national charts, and we start at number 10 with Into the Abyss. Yeah, no, I'm really glad this has taken money. This is the Werner Herzog documentary about Death Row that we talked about at the back end of last week. Indeed. And it's often the case that you know, the most interesting film that we review on this show will vanish without a trace and never show up and never take any money at all. Um, clearly, Werner Herzog's name has a lot more brand power than we realise. No, I think it's a really interesting documentary about Death Row with Herzog's typical humanity and insight. So see it while you get the chance. At number nine is Contraband. Pretty straightforward nuts and bolts thriller with Mark Wahlberg. It's a remake of an Icelandic thriller with him on as producer. No, you can see where everything is going. It's okay, but nothing more than okay. At number eight, We Bought a Zoo. Partial return to form for Cameron Crowe after the sickening schmaltz of Elizabethtown. No, we speak as fans of Lassa Hallstrom, so we can take a little bit more sentimentality than a lot of people. Um, it is, again, like contraband, it is predictable, and you, know, you could, having seen the trailer, sketch out what will happen to each of the characters. So, But if your thresholds for sentimentality are reasonably high, you should enjoy it. Number seven, described on Rotten Tomatoes here as a cheap, choppy, unscary mess, featuring one of the worst endings in recent history, The Devil Inside. Yet another found footage horror film which has one of the worst endings in cinema. No, the found footage medium has run its course. Move on. Uh, well, we'll move on now to the best exotic Marigold Hotel at number six. Yeah, which I like. You know, John Madden's a pretty decent director. I do think the cast are, are genuinely charming, particularly Celia Imri, who you know, does make the most of her character. And I don't think it's a perfect film by any means, but it's it's an enjoyable, feel-good, slightly frothy romp, and it's good to see Dev Patel back on our screens. Right, mixed opinions from critic and audience for our number five film this week, Street Dance 2. Which is a completely unremarkable sequel to a completely unremarkable original. I think both this and the original were in 3D, but I'm not sure whether the, the 3D is original or retrofitted. I mean, we didn't... This came out last week. We didn't review it because... There isn't really much point with street dance. It's like all these other kinds of films which are essentially knocking off fame. It is essentially a collection of dance sequences strung together by a ridiculous plot, and it will be in and out of the cinemas as quickly as it will be in and out of your ears. Right, it's Jonah Hill and Channing Tatum at number four with uh, 21 Jump Street. Yeah, which is you know, a surprisingly funny remake of a 1980s cop show, which, of course, launched the career of Johnny Depp. 
Again, it's not much more than fine, but in the sense, I don't think it's up there, for instance, with something like um, the film version of Starsky and Hutch, which did do something interesting with that sort of tired 70s cop show. But I do think, you know, Jonah Hill has partially redeemed himself with this for doing The Sitter, and that's quite an achievement. Right, so we've got a bit of a who's who of uh, British movie scene. That's uh, number three. Voices from Hugh Grant, Martin Freeman, Imelda Staunton, Brendan Gleeson, David Tennant and Brian Blessed. Ah, one of my favourite actors. And it's uh, Pirates, Band of Misfits. Yeah, that's the American title. The, the English title is um, The Pirates and an Adventure with Scientists. I went to see this last weekend and I loved it. Um, I mean, it's you know, the latest from Marvel Animation, so you know that you're going to get a product of a certain amount of quality. And like all Ardman films, the devil is in the detail, so that if you go and see it, you don't see everything the first time around, quite apart from the fact that you're laughing so hard that you won't notice all the gags. Um, it does seem like Ardman's relationship with Sony Pictures Animation, with which they made this film, is proving more creative than their, their work with DreamWorks, with whom they did Flashed Away. But the bottom line is, it's rip-roaring fun. It is constantly hilarious. I mean, I was, you know, sat there and I didn't stop laughing once in the whole 90 minutes. And Imelda Storms and as Queen Victoria is brilliant. So go and see it, particularly if you've got young children, because it's a good introduction to Ardman. One, uh, number two, that we probably won't be recommending for people to go see is Wrath of the Titans. Yeah, every bit as boring and as disappointing as Clash of the Titans. You know, the actors are sleepwalking or hamming their way through their parts. The special effects and the monsters are not engaging. The 3D is pointless, and the whole thing feels like a product of a committee. The only good thing I'll say about it is, you know, the fact that it's pushed John Carter out of the top ten means I'm likely to be slightly more generous towards it, but... Other than that, it's got nothing really going for it. And a bit of sci-fi at number one, The Hunger Games. Yeah, which I, I think is really great. I, do, I did say last week I thought it was better than the, the original version of Lord of the Flies, and I stand by that. I mean, one of the things I liked about it was the fact that you could spot all the references to things like the work of Tim Burton or Logan's Run or Deliverance in there. But it did manage to have its own identity, and above all, I am impressed by the fact that someone actually took the time to make a mainstream sci-fi blockbuster aimed at a teenage audience that actually had something intelligent and sophisticated to say. And I do think that Jennifer Lawrence is absolutely terrific, and we'll be seeing a lot more from her. So, a bit of a mixed bunch this week, but there's a few to recommend, I think, aren't there? Yeah, there's The Hunger Games, definitely, although it's not for the faint-hearted, even though it is only a 12. Um, the Pirates in an Adventure with Scientist, which is really great fun. I'm not sure it's quite up there with Curse of the Were-Rabbit, but it's damn close. And as an outside... And uh, the best exotic marigolds I'll tell would be the other one, because we bought a zoo can go either way. So, that's the local films and the top ten this week, and don't forget, lots of really good local films on, as you'll be able to see in the Gazette if you missed it, or wait for the podcast, or something like that. We'll do our cult classic after this. This is the fresh sound for the district. Live from Annex. This is Lionheart Radio. Now, here's a little bit of a trivia question for you for a Saturday morning. For those of you who remember that awfully cheesy song, Stephanie de Sykes, Born With a Smile on My Face, from, I guess it would have been the late 70s, I, I think. Um, what's the connection between that and our cult classic today? Have a think about that one. If you want to text it in, it's 07961 I was trying to download it this morning but i can't do downloads so i'll have to get someone else in to do it and we'll play it one saturday morning do you know the answer to that one daniel not off the top of my head no are you going to reveal do you do, the do you remember the song i don't think i do that's the thing yes yeah, something like born with a smile on my face da 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 
No. So it's sort of vaguely Tim Pan Alley sound to it. Yeah, probably deserved to die without trace, really. Anyway, a cult classic this week, a brilliant film from 1981, and it's uh, Gregory's Girl. Yeah, so I'll, I'll set it up and then I'll let you have uh, a kind of let you have your pitch about why you love it so much. Um, so 1981, coming-of-age comedy drama, which was nominated for four BAFTA awards and I think won the BAFTA for Best Original Screenplay back in 1982. Written and directed by Bill Forsyth, um, as opposed to Bill Forsyth, he gets rather chippy if you mispronounce his surname, um, Scottish filmmaker who was spotted and nurtured by what was then David, now Lord Putnam, the famous filmmaker who was behind um, such things as Chariots of Fire and, you know, had a close working relationship with Richard Attenborough. And um, it was an interesting point in, in sort of late 70s, early 80s British cinema where um, after sort of a long period of stagnation, a lot of British films were getting noticed in Hollywood again. There was the famous moment where Chariots of Fire won... I can't remember how many Oscars it won, but it won lots. And uh, the producer of Chariots of Fire went up and gave this speech about, you know, the British are coming and uh, we're going to take over Hollywood and have massive success. And then there was that very cynical interview with Lindsay Anderson, who, who was, you know, making Britannia Hospital around that time, saying, you know, the British were coming, but their airfares were paid in dollars. In other words, you know, the British only became successful by making exactly the same films as the Americans and in doing so, shooting themselves in the foot. But anyway, so Bill Forsyth was one of the, the, the talents who came in on the back of Chariots of Fire. I mean, he'd started off with a little low-budget film called That Sinking Feeling, and his, his career was very much nurtured by Putnam through his golden period between sort of 1980 and 84, probably, up towards the, uh, the filming of Comfort and Joy. He's probably most famous for directing Local Hero, from which came out the year after this, which features Peter Capaldi way before he was in the thick of it. And, it, you know, if you look, watch Local Hero now, it is quite you know, difficult to imagine how he could turn into someone so repulsive and nasty the character of course i'm sure peter capaldi the actor is a very nice guy um also featuring burt lancaster in his best late period role although i do quite like him in field of dreams and of course the famous soundtrack from uh, mark Knopfler. um the film apparently had a budget of 500 pounds which is a disputed figure but it does reflect to the fact that a lot of the uh, a lot of the props and the costumes for gregory's girl were made or contributed by the cast themselves and it made about 25 million on the back of that so so quite a tidy little earner if it did indeed only cost 500 um and it has turned up on several lists and it was number 30 on the bfi top 100 list of british films and deservedly and, so absolutely yeah and number 29 on Entertainment Weekly's list of the 50 greatest high school films, although I should point out that Heather's is at number five. Um, so, the, the plot is, it's set on the uh, the Abron Hill district of Cumbernaut in Scotland, and the story follows Gregory Underwood, played by Gordon Sinclair, who is a hapless high school student who doesn't really take his life or girls very seriously. The film begins with a shot of him and a few of the younger boys spying on a middle-aged lady at her window getting undressed and they're sort of hiding in the bushes and trying to stifle adolescent laughter. Um, he, a lot of the film focuses around his sporting... Um, uh, conquest or rather lack of he gets put in goal for the football matches because he's a bit rubbish um, there's a trial out for new football players and a girl called dorothy played by your crush d hepburn uh, auditions for the team and it turns out to be better than all of the boys and you know has vastly better skills both on and off the field and gregory basically says i'm going to pursue her and see if i can score with her in a manner of speaking um he tries everything he can to get to her meanwhile the film also follows the attempts of two of 
is um, even more romantically inept friends to uh, to get laid. And the relationship between Gregory and another girl called Susan, played by um, Altered Images lead singer Claire Grogan. I think that set it up quite nicely, don't you think? It has indeed, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, the thing with coming-of-age films is that because their appeal rests so strongly upon their evocation of a period, it's quite difficult for me to actually appreciate how Gregory's Girl would have felt the first time around. So this is where you come in. Yeah, can you Can you talk us through the circumstances in which you first saw the film and what you first thought of it? Oh, uh, how old would I have been at the time? I was probably slightly older than coming of age. It would have been uh, 21, I guess, when it... 21, 22 when it came out, something like that. Yes. Yeah, um, but, uh, I mean, the... I guess the backdrop, of course, was that uh, the British uh, cinema was dead and uh, all the Brits were coming. It would a long time getting there and it was, it felt a very Hollywood-dominated thing. So to have a British film was just something different to the, that took your attention. You wanted to go and see it anyway. So, yeah, the backdrop was interesting. Um, obviously, uh, I fell in love with uh, Dee Hepburn immediately and stayed in love with her. For a good length of my uh, period in the 1980s, uh, but others great actors as well, John Gordon Sinclair and Craig Ogan uh, were brilliant in it as well. Um, but for me, it's uh, it was just that little bit of an antidote to the American coming of age film. Um, you know, I'm a great fan of films like um, like Animal House and Porky's, but uh, it told an American story of of coming of age with very self confident kids uh, with cars, and they just sort of walks their way around through various adventures. Um, Gregory's Girl was good because it was gawky and it was a bit, you know, it's a bit like real life was in the um, in the the late. 70s early 80s yes. of uh, clothes that didn't quite fit properly hairstyles which um, should have been buried with the arc um, <laughs> and uh, clumsy people who didn't quite know how to do things and I'm afraid as a clumsy uh, teenager with with um, matters of the heart and things like that it's sort of one that had great empathy with me and uh, it didn't try and sell this sugar-coated American version of it and it was it was all a bit awkward it was all a bit gawky and it was all you know, something you could identify with, and um, yeah. uh, you haven't got it. You don't know where you're born these days, you youngsters. <laughs> Can you remember exactly where you saw it? Uh, I think it would have been at um, the the old cinema in North Road in Durham, because uh, I was living in Durham at the time. So I'm pretty sure that's where I'd have, I'd have gone to see it. And have uh, you ever taken a pilgrimage back there? Uh, well, the cinema unfortunately is gone. It's uh, it became a pub for a while, and I think even that's boarded up now. So uh, those of you who ever were in Durham, you would have known North Road uh, going up from um, the river to the railway station, and it was about halfway up on the left and it was a great uh, classic old cinema that closed some time ago i think and uh, yeah. now it's a multiplex somewhere at the garda theater or something because okay. all these have become haven't they yeah well maybe we should start a campaign to get a blue plaque up there yes indeed <laughs> where richard dale first saw gregory's girl okay um that, that's fantastic i mean the interesting thing about gregory's girl for me is the fact that if you look at the, the wave of coming-of-age films from America that you're talking about. I mean, sort of starting in the early 70s with Last Picture Show and American Graffiti going forward into Animal House. 
the interesting thing about all those films is that we tend to remember them for the careers that they launched rather than necessarily how good they were as films. Because, I mean, you can't really talk about The Last Picture Show without immediately thinking of Jeff Bridges. Or you can't really talk about American Graffiti without pointing at Ron Howard, who, of course, was the best director on the set of that film. Um, whereas with Gregory's Girl, it's, it's much more of an ensemble piece. And although, like you say, you know, Dee Hepburn and Claire Grogan and John Gordon Sinclair are very good actors, it wasn't necessarily a star maker for them. I mean, no, it's, its cult appeal rests upon the fact that so many people like yourself have such a deep-rooted affection for it, rather than the fact that one of the actors gives a sort of juicy, barnstorming performance that makes everyone sit up and take notice. Um, like I say, so the test for any coming-of-age film, but particularly for Gregory's Girl, is this. First of all, does it evoke its period? And I think, based upon everything you said, it does. And the second thing is, does it tap into any kind of universal truth outside the period? Because that is the, the way you're going to judge whether or not it's going to age well. Because, you know, speaking as someone who didn't grow up in the late 70s and early 80s and therefore doesn't get a lot of the, the small subtle cultural references and know, doesn't know what you know, like a Scottish Comprehensive was like, it's got to have those kind of little bits of insight to persuade people of my generation to actually re-examine it. And I think, by and large, the answer is it does evoke those kinds of truths, albeit not quite flawlessly. I mean, like you say, I think the main appeal of Gregory's Girl is as a response or an antidote to the bawdier, more gross-out orientated comedies which America was producing around this time. I mean, like you say, you have the, the wave that started with National Lampoon's Animal House, which is you know, directed by John Landis, you know, with a, a very wild, raucous performance by John Belushi, in the way you know, he gets to slide down a banister in a toga while smashing someone on the head with a guitar. And, you know, there's not... For its time, there's quite a lot to like about Animal House, but then you get into Lemon Popsicle and Porkies and, you know, films which increasingly reduced adolescence to just the pursuit of drunkenness, sexual satisfaction, and being obnoxious for its own sake. And Animal House, I think, was a really, really great film. We've talked about this in the past, and you know, what mm. a fantastic film it was, but it just wasn't life in England. Uh, I don't know about Scotland, because I didn't know much about Scotland, but certainly northeast England or the Midlands, um, back in the late 70s, early 80s being a teenager and uh you know that's what made uh, i guess gregory's girl so much more interesting yeah i mean because we we haven't grown up with sort of fraternities or um or or mad magazine or anything like that so yeah, i can understand that and the interesting little thing about it is that there is actually a new a new american pie film coming out and it's interesting that the american pie series which started out satirizing and playing all those animal house and porky's jokes in a postmodern way seems to have gone completely full circle and now they're just playing those gags straight so it's interesting how things change so basically while while those kinds of films are basically, at their worst, content to serve up just joke after joke about bodily fluids and the female anatomy. Not that there's anything wrong with that inherently. Gregory's Girl is far more gentle and far more sophisticated to some extent because it's about the communication barrier between men and women. And like I say, it does open with, with a voyeuristic sequence of Gregory and his girls spying on a woman taking her bra off. But it, um, whereas in Animal House, that would be sort of, or Porky, for that matter, that would be executed with the guys sort of whooping and you no... Know, giving off wolf whistles and we just think oh grow up in gregory's girl it's it's underplayed and it's it's sort of gawky and awkward as if they don't really know why they're being there and you no know, there are little tiny bits of adolescent excess in gregory's girl like you no know, there's a moment where one one of gregory's friends who's a window cleaner turns up and there's an there's an implication that he's been spying on women which of course hints back to that rubbish film confessions of a window cleaner from the mid-70s but in general, the film is much lighter and much sweeter and much more 
not aloof necessarily, but much more content to just say, you know what, let's take a step back from all that you know, quest for getting laid stuff and let's actually look about what it's really like to be a teenager because contrary to what you know, the popular press both then and now says, teenagers do not spend all their time getting drunk and having sex. Um, it does put an interesting twist on the coming-of-age story insofar as the younger children who aren't actually old enough to do all the stuff that Gregory wants to do are ironically the most developed and the most mature of all the characters because you have Gregory's younger sister called Madeline who is the Gregory's girl of the title and she's actually the one who gives uh, no romantic advice to Gregory and she actually calls him hormonally challenged at some point which I absolutely love and she, and so while Gregory's struggling to get um, Dorothy to, to go out with him and trying to get her to fall in love with him, there's a strange little subplot going on where she's got a suitor of her own and this, this, this you know, young man who turns up at her door and gives her flowers and you see him holding hands every now and again. And the film counterpoints this sort of very sweet, very heartfelt vision of young love with not just the act of Gregory and his friends, but also the scenes in the staff room where you have the teachers kind of winding each other up about you know, how thick their moustaches are and uh, you know, students passing love letters to them, which is it's kind of saying, you know, boys don't grow up, basically, unless they have you know, a good, strong woman behind them to actually steer them on the straight and narrow. Um, it is a film which very much uses its low budget to its advantage. I mean, in so far as... If you compare this to something like American Graffiti... American Graffiti, again, it wasn't made for a huge amount of money, but the production values on American Graffiti are quite high, particularly in the soundtrack, because you remember American Graffiti has got, oh, no, a jukebox song that comes along every five or ten minutes and just hurries the action along, and you get the kind of the long scenes with the car and so forth. But the thing with American Graffiti is, I mean, quite apart from the fact that George Lucas's direction on that film is incredibly stodgy, the fact that you've got this kind of raucous jukebox soundtrack going on makes it feel like the action is being... It's a little too choreographed. It's a little bit too, you know, like you were saying, it doesn't really have any bearing on reality. That doesn't mean that there isn't truth in there somewhere, but it's a kind of romanticised, varnished version of the truth. Yeah, and I think the other thing, I mean, I sort of compare, because I wasn't that old when I first went to the States, there was something just a bit more polished about growing up in the States mm. uh, because of the, the fact that people could drive at 16, the fact that um, the the old town centres had pretty well died out and had gone out of town and all of that well before. Um, the fact that it was the dumb thing for kids to go out driving out to the cinema in the evening or things like that. You, which suddenly, you know, when I was a kid, uh, it wasn't the sort of lifestyle you had. You walked places and all you went on the bus and Gregory's Girl is a place of walking in buses, not a place of, you know, fancy cars going out. And I think, yeah, I think probably England and States caught up a little bit over the years but uh, you know i think the, the states of the early 80s would have been a in a different planet to um, the england scotland of the early 80s yeah because i think the only scene in gregory's girl that takes place in a car is when gregory's dad who's a driving instructor is giving him a lift to school and basically telling him to sort his life out yeah but, uh, that's a very good observation i mean in this case you have a film that was the, the budget was so low that all of the actors wore their own clothes which is not entirely unusual i mean we talked about um, Mad Max and the fact that Mel Gibson is the only one genuinely wearing leather in that film and everyone else is wearing 
well, effectively bin liners because it's vinyl, or you talk, if you look at something like the Clonus Horror, in which, you know, it is almost like Gregory's Girl in the sense, you know, everyone's wearing sort of jumpers and tracksuits, you know, they clearly had no money for the budget. But and the days of nylon and flares. Yes, exactly. Um, but the thing about it is that because you've got, I mean, on the one hand, if you were being incredibly cynical, you could look at the film and say, oh, cheap nonsense. But actually, the thing that I like about this and so many other low-budget films is, because you've got, because you have a situation where the cast need to supply their own clothes or use their own car or whatever it may be, there's an automatic sense of commitment which you don't get on on bigger budget films where you're just turning up on the set, being someone else for two hours, and then going back to your trailer. And you do get the sense of, you know, yes, it wasn't made for very much money, but it has a lot more bearing on real life because you feel like these guys could have just wandered into shot from from doing other stuff that was completely normal, and that is, that is part of the big appeal of Gregory's Girl. I mean, the central message of the film that I took from it, and you can feel free to disagree because you, you, you are much more enamored with this than I am, is that the person that we set our hearts on and, and try and fall in love with is not necessarily the person that we're destined to be with. Do you think that's fair enough? Yeah, I think that's probably a fair summary, yeah. Yeah, because, you know, having the first two-thirds of the film are about Gregory's pursuit of Dorothy, and then there's that sequence underneath the clock where she's finally agreed to meet him, and then 10 minutes goes past, 15 minutes goes past, and she hasn't turned up, and we're a little bit heartbroken for Gregory. And then, you know, the various friends come along, and, you know, one friend leads to another, and then there's another, and then eventually he ends up with Susan, and she basically says, you know, I wanted to date you all along, and we girls help each other out, it's what we do. I mean, it's that... Again, there is no sugary gloss or mawkish payoff to that. It's, it's just, you know, it's, it's unconscious. That's the best way of putting it, because, no, no, although we've seen Gregory and Susan, you know, interact in this film, there isn't much to suggest that they would necessarily be natural together. But then once you get them in the park and doing that sequence of them uh, lying on their back on the grass and pretending to run before they fall off the face of the earth and then the camera tilts so it looks as if they're running horizontally. And, you know, it's a really sweet scene and it does convey the theme very well, very unforcedly. And you know, I think that most of us, you know, certainly most of us who and grew up around that time can can sympathise with that kind of lesson of you know that we might fancy someone until the cows come home, but most of the time it's not going to happen because there's someone better suited to us that's out there. And as a gawky teenager, I could have coped with Claire Grogan. Yes, exactly. I mean, it is it's reassuring as much as anything else. And if you no, know, if D Hepburn doesn't work out, there's someone else who's pretty much as beautiful, and uh, so you needn't have your heart broken for too long. Um, it does, the film does ride on its ability to generate goodwill, which considering how much we've talked about, it, it doesn't, it, it does succeed quite a lot on that. I don't think it's quite got the slight dark edge of some of Forsyth's other work. I mean, you look at Comfort and Joy, which is about, um, warring ice cream salesmen, and that has little moments of, you no know, massive heartbreak. Or alternatively, Local Hero, where, you know, which Bill Forsyth once brilliantly described as Brigadoon meets Apocalypse Now. Absolutely fantastic film. I love Local Hero. Absolutely yes. love it. Do you think it's better than Gregory's Girl? Uh, I think as a film it probably is, actually. Um, it's very hard to um, to take something which is so so uh, ingrained in your growing up and then compare it with something which wasn't. But um, I think, yes, I think probably as a film it is a better film. Yeah, okay. I mean, I'm sort of agree, but that's mainly because of my love for Mark Knopfler. I think his soundtrack is one of the best sound scores of the 80s. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the other, the, the odd little thing I wanted to ask you about is, 
there's a sequence in Gregory's Girl where, it, for two scenes, it cuts randomly to a guy walking around the school in the penguin suit, which has no bearing whatsoever on the plot. And, no, it, it's one of those likes of the big-lipped alligator moments where once it happens, no one ever speaks of it again. And there's been lots of theories bounded around about why he put that in. I was just wondering if you had any thoughts. Oh, no, I'm just trying to even remember that, actually. It's, uh... He's on for literally about ten seconds, and then uh... he's gone, but... Uh... No, I don't actually remember it, so certainly it's, it didn't have any lasting impression on me. Okay, maybe it's just a deliberate non-sequitron for science. It doesn't ruin the film, certainly. Yeah. Um, the structure of Gregory's Girl is rather meandering. I mean, again, this this is not so much a criticism as an observation, because, you know, in, in reality, our lives do not follow the structure of a three-act film plot, for better or worse. And a lot of the subplots that are raised, so, for instance, about you know, Madeline's relationship with her suitor or the, the two inept friends of Gregory trying to hitchhike to Caracas, because apparently the ratio of women to men there is eight to one, apparently. Um, a lot of those aren't quite developed as much as I'd like, but on the other hand, I guess it's supposed to be open-ended because, you know, it, the, the point of the film is saying that you know, romance is not something that's tied up in a neat little bow. It's, it's something that takes effort and, and don't just, Know, get blinked about the person you're going for. I think the only thing that the film could have been improved by in that sense is actually if you'd had the relationship between you know, Gregory and Dorothy played out much more strongly against that of Madeline and her boyfriend to see how you know one gets stronger as the other gets weaker and then the lovely twist with Susan comes at the end. But that's a very minor criticism because I do think the film as it stands is very good. So in terms of the performances, I mean, John Gordon Sinclair, it, no, he is almost the archetypal British adolescent now because of how much affection he's got for this. And he does, he does that, those kinds of awkward scenes very well. The, the, t the deodorant on the T-shirt scene is, is hard not to love because it's just so, so sweet and yet so um, you know, pathetic thing to do. Um, Dee Hepburn underplays her role a little bit, but I can see why you're completely besotted with her because she is gorgeous. Um, and Claire Grogan does have a real spark to her, which if you look at her later performances in uh, the early series of Red Dwarf, where she's Kachansky, you can see that sort of, that slightly, well, just sort of spiky, maybe even slightly punky edge to her, uh, which I really like. I do think some of the supporting characters are underwritten, like I say, but because the film is about Gregory and Dorothy and those three, I I'm not particularly bothered about that. So to, sorry, you go first. No, 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 you, you, you. Okay, I was just going to say, to sum up, I think it's, you know, a genuinely charming coming-of-age film, which, unlike so many of the American films that we've mentioned, has stood the test of time. I do think Local Hero is better, uh, but it, this is a very happy, charming addition to the coming-of-age genre, which has a really brutal honesty and does win you over. It's also a reminder, I think, that, you no. Know, particularly in light of the fact that we talked about Heathers last week and the recent passing of John Hughes, that contrary to popular opinion, teenage comedies do not need to be all about you know, crude jokes and scenes of contrived anarchy. And you no, know, whether there's a slice of nostalgia or you know, a genuine heart warmer, it's very hard to fault Gregory's Girl. I think it was just lovely at the time to have a successful British film. And if you lived through that period when there was so little around, it was just a great success. So, uh, anyway, trivia time. What did they go on to do next? Well, of course, uh, Dee Hepburn went on to play... 
receptionist whose name I can't remember in Crossroads, um, which um, some years earlier had uh, featured um, what could only be described as blatant product placement for Stephanie de Sykes' um, song Born With A Smile In My Heart, because had it not been featured incessantly on Crossroads, it would certainly have never got to number two in the British charts. Oh, so that's the vague tenuous link. Claire Grogan, of course, went on to lots of great things, and uh, should we do an Altered Images song before the end of the show? I think we should finish with that, yes. yes I think so. Good. And um, John Gordon Sinclair, can you remember what he went on to do? Well, he's in the sequel to this called um, Gregory's Two Girls. Um, oh. But on, on small screen? Yeah, um, no, my mind's gone no. blank. He went on to be the presenter of Fraggle Rock. Oh, of course, yes. Fantastic programme, very underrated. And here's the theme tune. Radio. Down at Fraggle Rock. I love the end to that one. That's really good. Uh, the Muppets and uh, the theme tune from Fraggle Rock. Well, Daniel, having spent the last few minutes uh, having my uh, childhood fantasies uh, revisited, uh, I guess we better have one for the ladies. And Sean Bean's back, isn't he? In, um, what's it called? Mirror Mirror. Oh, yes. Well, you want to go on to the new releases. That's, that's fine. Okay. Um... Yeah, and Mirror Mirror is the new film by Tarzan Singh, who is uh, the guy who directed um, The Cell with Jennifer Lopez and The Fall. Most recently did Immortals, which wasn't that good. It's one of two retellings of Snow White, which is coming out this year, the other being Snow White and the Huntsman, which, which will have Kirsten Stewart in, and I'm really looking forward to that. Um, the story, as we all know, it's set in a kingdom in a faraway land where Snow White, played by Lily Collins, is living with her father, the king, played by Sharp, Sean Bean, and her wicked stepmother, played by Julia Roberts, in a very odd piece of casting. Um, the queen is, as you know, jealous of Snow White's beauty. She orders a huntsman to go and kill her. Instead, she goes off to live in a cottage with seven dwarves. And there's also a prince involved who is played by Arnie Hammer, who is the Winklevoss twins from the social network. Here's the thing. Tarzan Singh comes out of music videos. I mean, he's most famous for doing the video for that R.E.M. song, Losing My Religion, um, from the early 90s. And the thing is, all of his films are lavishly beautiful, but have absolutely nothing between their ears. I mean, in this case, you've got lots of lovely Swan Lake-like costumes with wings on them and bright primary colours. And It's like all the moments in the cell where Jennifer Lopez, as the psychiatrist, goes inside Vincent D'Onofrio's head and sees all these strange sort of beds and drapes and so forth. But in the end, it is rather feeble and rather empty adaptation of the story. I mean, people have come out in this defence and saying, oh, well, it's aimed at a younger audience. Well, yes, but the younger audience have already got the Disney version, so they're already catered for on that front. The slapstick is rather poorly executed and not that integral to the story. I mean, there's a moment where Arnie Hammer's character is given the brain of a dog and starts slobbering and trying to sort of um, kiss Julia Roberts on the lips, which is in sort of a dog way. And all the bits when it should be doing the fairy tale straight, it kind of sidesteps, not in a sort of postmodern Shrekish way, but just a bit of a feeble way. So instead of mirror mirror on the wall who's the fairest of them all just being a mirror, it's a strange portal into another universe. And you just think... You don't need to do that. There is plenty of stuff in the Grimm's fairy tale already that you can mine. Just play it straight. So it's just a bit pants, to be honest. Well, there's a thought for you. Yeah. Uh, of course, um, the reason you were a little bit surprised at the start there is because I forgot to talk about next week, which our cult film is going to be This Is Spinal Tap. Yes, it is. Um, I'm going to be doing that down the line again, so uh, hopefully the signal will be as good in the West Country as it is in Manchester, but yes. Um, oh, yes. it's a, it's a long way down there, you know. Yes, you'll have to turn your speakers up to 11 to hear me. Yes. 
and that was an absolutely pointless attempt at a West Country accent. Shall we move on to the low, well, we there, the cold light of day? Okay. New film by Mabruk El Metri, who previously directed JCVD, which was a sort of postmodern take on all Jean-Claude Van Damme's um, action films. Um, story follows Will Shaw, played by Henry Cavill, who was in Immortals and is also going to be the new Superman when that comes out earlier, uh, later this year. He uh, <clears throat> is a guy who goes to Spain for a sailing holiday. His family are kidnapped by intelligence agents who are trying to recover a briefcase and he has to go on the run. It wasn't press screen from what I gather. I mean, I don't think Rotten Tomatoes has got a rating for it yet. It hasn't, no. No. The thing I would say is it is just a bit generic. You know, it's a very generic action trailer with sort of rapid casting and building up, and it's got a very generic setup. The cast are playing kind of ciphers, although Sigourney Weaver and Bruce Willis do make the best they can with what they have. I mean, basically, I think this is what... If you take Roman Polanski's Frantic and then shoot it with a 21st century sensibility, this is what you would get. I mean, the whole thing about you know, the, the plot involving the briefcase is a direct lift from Frantic, which is a very good, frothy, fun film. So, I mean, I think that it's okay. It will satisfy you, you know, of a Friday night, but you're not going to remember it in the way that you'll remember some other stuff. Okay, one that's getting rave reviews from the critics now. Uh, Le Havre. Yeah, absolutely right. Well pronounced. It's it's the new film by Aki Kurosaki. Who, um, if you if your cult film knowledge is even deeper than mine, you may remember from the Leningrad Cowboys series of films. It was this basically billed as the Russian Spinal Tap, where you had the Leningrad Cowboys, this Russian band who were held as the worst rock and roll group in the world. And the first film was about them going over to crack America, and then the second film was about them walking across the desert with a guy called Moses trying to get back to Siberia. You know, they're, they're quite sort of funny in an esoteric sort of way. This is a deadpan uh, comedy drama uh, set in the eponymous French harbour city of Le Havre, and it, it follows a young African refugee called Idrissa, played by uh, Blondin Miguel, and a bohemian shoeshiner, played by uh, André Vilms, he, the character's called Marcel Marx. They form a bond from you know, being on the quayside together. The former is going to be deported by the authorities, and so Marcel sticks up for him and rallies the community around to make him stay. It's, no, it's a nice, gentle drama with a warm sense of humour. It is very beautifully shot. It's 93 minutes long, I think, so it doesn't overstay its welcome. I mean, there, are a, there is a sort of political aspect to it. You know, it talks about you know, ports being like a hinterland between, between different places and you know, port life is like a snapshot of humanity itself. But all of that stuff is in the background, and what you have is is the relationship between these two guys, which is very heartfelt. Now, Roger Ebert said something about the... The difference between European and American films is American films, you're introduced to the characters and in five minutes you know what they're all about, whereas in European films there's a lot of sort of mystery and stuff that is unsaid or unwritten. And this is a film which definitely proves that. Right, the next one is one for all the goth fans, I guess. It's This Must Be The Place. Yeah, in a strange way, yeah. It's the new film by Paolo Sorrentino, who did things like uh, The Consequences of Love and most recently Il Divo, which was this, uh, this restaged docudrama about... Uh, I almost said Giovanni Agnelli, but not the Fiat guy, this, uh, this Italian politician who's been in power for something like 40 years. So the story is you have a guy called Cheyenne, played by Sean Penn, not my favourite actor, who is um, a former rock star who still dresses like a goth well into his 50s, and he's living off his royalties. One day his father dies, and he comes back to New York City for the funeral, to where it turns out his father was seeking revenge for a past humiliation, and so Cheyenne 
seeks to pick up where he left off and sets off across America to right the wrong, and on the way it goes on an emotional journey. I mean, the thing it reminded me of is um, there's a Vin Vendors film from the early 80s called Kings of the Road, in which it's, a, no, it's, it's effectively the film that redefined a modern road movie after Tulane Blacktop and so forth, where you have two guys driving across America talking about this, that, and next to nothing and eventually becoming the best of friends. Or, you know, for instance, you look at something like David Lynch's The Straight Story, in which it's uh, you know, a guy traveling across America on a lawnmower to visit his brother before he dies, and that's, again, a very sweet story. It's a perfectly straightforward road movie in terms of its character arc and story. You know, the only distinctive thing about it is the sort of the overt and brusque performance of Sean Penn, who, when I first saw the trailer, I thought, is this a drag queen film? Like, you no, know, Transamerica? Oh, he's actually not a woman. Um, no, I think Paolo Sorrentino is a good director, and Penn gives it all. It never really quite comes together, and I do slightly hold against it because of its cover of the Talking Heads song which, called um, Naive Melody, This Must Be the Place in Which It Takes Its Title. The cover is terrible. The film is okay, but it's not Sorrentino's finest work. So Sean Penn may not be your favourite actor. I have to say Judd Hirsch, who's one of the co-stars, is one of my favourite actors, so it should be okay. quite interesting. Headhunters is the next one. Okay, it's a new film by Morden Tilden, uh, adapted from the novel by Joe Nesbo, who is being hailed as the new Stig Larsson. Um, it stars, this is where the pronunciations come in again, Axel Henny. Uh, it's, uh, Sounds pretty good to me. Yeah, uh, so he plays a character called uh, Roger, and uh, he is Norway's most accomplished headhunter. He's living a life of luxury in this massive palace in, well, not a palace, but a pad in, uh, in Norway, well beyond his means. He is introduced to a former mercenary who owns a valuable painting, and he says, I'm going to go for the big steal, and the, the heist, so to speak, goes a bit wrong, and he becomes a hunted man and has to go off into the Norwegian countryside to go into hiding. I mean, the trailer for this looks like the trailer for the recent remake of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, and it is, I think that both films are kind of cashing in on the wave of Scandinavian crime and detective series, and indeed the novels, because there is a big wave going through television and, and literature at the moment. But having said that, although it's not up with either the original or the remake of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, it is pretty gripping, and it does that thing of... A lot of Scandinavian thrillers do of being of having that sort of bleak or you know, existential edge to it in the sense that it's not just a guy running around with a painting every so often firing a gun. It's actually trying to ask deeper questions. So not groundbreaking by any means, but certainly a good candidate for film of the week. Oh, it sounds good. And we finish with another animation. This sun sounds like being a cracker. Uh, Cat in Paris, or as I guess it was originally made, Une Vie de Chat. It's the debut animated feature from Jean-Luc Feliciali, I think. We're doing well for names this week, aren't we? Not too bad. And uh, also animated by Alain Guignol. Um, the story follows Dino, who is a, a cat living in Paris, who lives with his owner Zoe during the day, and by night goes on the prowl throughout the city. One night, Zoe decides to follow him as he goes prowling along the rooftops, and they get dragged into a gangster plot where you know, this gang is planning to steal an expensive statue, and uh, no, it goes off into a sort of crime caper area from there. I mean, I, I, it is a very short film, isn't it? It's something like 65, 70 minutes, and I think it almost got nominated for Best Short Film at the Oscars, but it was just slightly too long. 
in the end, it is kind of a poor man for Cat Returns, the Studio Ghibli film, which, you know, has so much more magic and much more ambition. But, in fairness, it's very nicely animated. I mean, it's you know, sort of strange expressionist photography almost at some times, and it will satisfy young audiences who just want a bit of a romp. I mean, there's, there's references to things like, you know, you could even say there's references to the adventures of Tintin in there because of the color palette and just the, the, the general sort of romping um, caper feel of it. So I don't think it's especially memorable, and I would recommend going to Rent the Cat Returns as well, but, you know, it will satisfy very young audiences. So some recommendations then. Um, I think joint film of the week is either Headhunters or Le Havre and The Cat in Paris if you've got very young children. But there's also plenty in the top ten. So plenty to go and see during the coming week. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, as I say, I'll see you next Saturday. I won't. I'll talk to you next Saturday. But you are coming back live and in person in the studio next Thursday, aren't you? Yep, Thursday 1 till 3, as per usual, for another dose of Mix and Match with Mumby. Right, good catching up with you as ever, Daniel, and uh, I'll talk to you next week. And to go out, Altered Images. Happy good birthday. Radio, the voice of Northumberland.